Good morning, Boker Tov. Welcome back to the Parsha Perspectives for today. And as always, thank you so much for joining me to be able to review our weekly sedra, our weekly Parsha, and to extract from it the lessons that are so informative, so instructive, so moving for us uh, till this very day and each and every day. We have the privilege this uh, morning of studying Parsha's Chaye Sara, a Parsha so rich and so beautiful, so much to extract, so much to learn. I want to thank our generous sponsors for the year, Becky and Avi Katz and family, loving memory of Becky's father, David Grossman, Lili Nishmas, David Ben Menachem Manish, thank you so much to the Katzes, and as well, this morning is sponsored by Janet Greenberg in honor of the fourth year outside of her father, Yona Ben Yitzchak, Zechron Lavracha, whose neshama should have an aliyah as well. Thank you for the generosity and thank you for the sponsorship. Parshish Chayisara appears in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash, if you're following along on page 106. Tragically, we go from the end of last week's Parsha Vayera, the story of the Akedah, of courage and heroism, a story of faith, of Avram Avinu, and less appreciated or spoken about, but equally of Yitzchak. And we go to this morning's Parsha, Chaye Sarah, this week's Parsha, where we see the consequence of that uh, Nisayon. Avram indeed passes that test, but he's faced with another one. And the test he's faced with when he returns and comes home is that he finds out that Sarah has expired. Sarah died. And how did she die? What did it say on her death certificate? That the cause of death was the Akedah. We learn from here, I've said this many times, we learn from here that when you have to deliver news, you start with the end and then you come back. So if you call your parents and you tell them, you're never going to believe it. Your grandchild at school today had an incident on the playground. They're fine. Everything's okay. Everyone is well. But listen to what happened. Instead, the messenger who came to report to Sarah the story of the Akedah did not begin with, Yitzchak is fine. He's okay. Everything is well. They said, you're never going to believe it. God told your husband Avram to slaughter your son Yitzchak, your one and only, your precious and beloved son. And before she could hear the end of the story, her soul left her body. Her soul left her body. That is the tragic beginning and circumstance, the tragic background to our Parsha. To our Parsha. The uh, Torah tells us, and it delineates her years, and it does so not in a succinct way. It does so not to describe she was 127 years, but 100 years, and 20 years, and 7 years. These were the Shnei Chaye Sarah, these were the years of her life. And of course, Rashi tells us, when she was 100, she was as pure, when 100, she was as innocent as 20, because the 20 is not yet liable for punishment. When she was as 20, she was as beautiful as when she was 7. And that's why the Torah delineates and spells it out in all these ways. And it ends Shnei Chaye Sarah, these were the years of the life of Sarah. Isn't that redundant? You just told us that she expired, that she died. You just told us her age when she left this world. Why do you need to also now tell us these were the year of her life? Isn't that the sense redundant? So Rashi says, Shnei Chaye Sarah. Listen to this Rashi, an incredible Rashi. Says Rashi, Kulan Shavin Latova. 127 years and all of them, all of them were equal in the sense for being good. All of them were good years. And I can't help but wonder, all of them were good years. Ask the Rebbe Reb Zusha, Reb Zusha Banapoli, what do you mean they were all good years? Are you kidding me? Is anyone who has a life, can anyone look back on their life and say they're Shavan Latova? Can anybody look back and evaluate? Every day, every month, every year, <coughs> they were all equal for the good. Most of Sarah's life, she had infertility, she was barren. And twice she was held captive in a palace of a king. She suffered from Hagar, with whom she had to share Avram, and from Yishmael, who she thought was a bad influence on her son Yitzchak. Are you going to tell me that her years of barrenness, of infertility, oh, it was all good, it was all bliss, it was all beautiful. Her years of being imprisoned or the times in which she was held captive in the palaces of the king. How could you possibly say, Kulin Shavu that they were all equal for the good? So the Rebbe Reb Zusha, and it's not a coincidence that he is the one who says this insight, he is the one who says this vort. Says the Rebbe Reb Zusha, I want to tell you his answer, but first I want to give you by background a story. I may have said this story recently here in the Parsha class. It might have been in the Amunashir. I don't remember, I don't recall. And I ask you to indulge me forgiveness. If I did say it recently, it is well worth repeating. The story of a man who once came to the Rebbe Rabdov Be'er, the Maggot of Mezrich. 
And he said, you know, the Gemara tells us that Kishem, Shem Avorchen, Al Hatov, the same way you make a bracha when something is good. You won the lottery, you got the job, you made the shidduch, you have great news. You bought a house, you have a baby. You make a bracha. Hatov HaMetev, you make a bracha for the good Shech Yanu. So Kach Mevorchen Al Hara, you also have to make a bracha when something bad happens. And he said, what do you mean Kishem? How could the Gemara possibly say Kishem? Same energy, the same, same enthusiasm, the same mentality. The same attitude, kishem, the same way. How is that possible? How could one bring the same attitude? So the Maggid of Mezrich, the great Rebbe of Dober, heard the question. And he said, you know, that's a very positive, a very powerful question. I want you to go see my Talmud, my disciple, my Chassid, the Rebbe of Zush of Anapoli, go to Anapoli, and I only he can help you. Ask him this question. He's the only one who can satisfy you with an answer. Go to him and ask him the question. So the Rebbe of Zush received his guest warmly, invited him to make himself at home, offered him something to eat and drink, as you would expect. And then the visitor decided it was time to challenge. So he watched Reb Zusha, and he concluded that his, his holy host, in fact, exemplified this teaching because Reb Zusha had suffered so much in his life. He was a very poor man. There were times where he had nothing to eat, times he was at risk of losing his home. His family had all kinds of illnesses and afflictions, had all kinds of challenges and tragedies and suffering. And yet the Rebbe of Zusha always had a smile. He was always positive. He always had a positive demeanor. He was always cheerful. And he was always expressing gratitude to the Rebbe of the Almighty. So what happened? The visitor finally got the courage and the strength. And he turns to the Rebbe of Zusha and he says, you know, I had this question. And I went to the Maggot of Mezrich to ask it, and he said, I have to come to you, you're the only one who could give an answer. And my question was, What do you mean the same way that you make a bracha on the good is the same attitude and mentality, the same passion and enthusiasm, you should make a bracha on the bad. And the Rebbe of Zusha turned to his guests and he said, I don't understand. It's a good question. But why would the Maggot send you to me? I've never suffered a day in my life. I've never had a moment of ra in my life. And the Chassid, this Talmud, this disciple understood that indeed the Rebbe of Zusha was the right address to answer the question. What do you mean, Kishem? If you go into your life with such a sense of faith, if your attitude is that none of it is suffering, it doesn't mean that there aren't painful things that happen to us. There are painful things that happen. But if we absorb them and integrate them, if they come, or they're, they're seen through the filter that everything that Hashem does is for the good, that there is a reason, that there's meaning and purpose in order to the universe, that though they may be painful, that they are not bad, because all that Hashem does is by definition good. If a person is able to, within themselves, extraordinarily challenging, not to minimize or diminish or make it sound easy, extraordinarily challenging, but if a person could reach that level of the Rebbe of Zusha, a person could live that life and say, I've never had a bad day in my life. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know why the Magad sent you to me. I've never actually had a bad day in my life. So if a person has that attitude, then kulan shav and latova. And that's exactly what the Rebbe of Zusha answers this question. Whatever Sarah endured, whatever she went through, even if it was challenging and even if it was painful, she understood it's all from Hashem. It's all by design. It's all for a reason. It all therefore makes sense. And therefore, Keshem Shachayev, Sarah never wavered in her faith. Sarah never paused or hesitated. For Sarah Imenu, Kulan Shavan Latova. All 127 years were good. Does it mean they were all good? Of course not. We just gave several examples where they weren't good. And yet, she received them, she experienced them as if they were all good because. They were from Hashem. And whatever is from Hashem is, by definition, for the good. So therefore, you see, Kulan Shavon Latova. This wasn't only Sarah Imenu. We'll get to it, I hope. But this was also the attitude of her life partner, of her husband. When Avram loses his life partner, Sarah, and he's essentially rendered irrelevant afterwards. Rabbi Soloveitchik points out that after Sarah leaves, Avram lives significantly longer, and yet we hear nothing from him. Because without his other half, he is incomplete, and he doesn't have the impact, the influence that he once had before. And yet, is he debilitated? Is he at a loss? Does he challenge Hashem? Does he walk away? No. What does the Pasuk describe right after Avram takes care of burying his wife? The very next section, page 108, Perech Pasuk Al, chapter 24, verse 1, the Avram Vashem Beraches Avram Bakol. Avram had reached a ripe old age, 
And Hashem blessed Avram Bakol. And before you get to Rashi and Gematrias and what Bakol means, the simple understanding is that Avram had an attitude throughout his life, not only in the joys, the triumphs, the successes, but even after in a moment of grief and loss, Vashem Berachas Avram Bakol. Like Sarah was Shavan Latova, her whole life is all equal good. Good not in the sense that it was pleasurable. There were painful moments. But good in the sense that if it all comes from God, then by definition it is good. Similarly, Avram had an attitude of Hashem Berachas Avram Bakol, that Avram experienced everything as. If it comes from Hashem, then by definition it is good. Kol, he has everything. He has everything Hashem has determined he should have. And that is the attitude and that is the life he led. Why do I launch? Why do I begin with that Tvar Torah? First of all, because I think it's very beautiful. I think it's very powerful. And I think it is a level that we can be ambitious and strive to achieve in our lives of Kulan Shavan Latova, even the moments of hardship or challenge, to realize it's from Hashem and therefore to receive it all as Latova, to live a life, to get to a level of Vashem Be'erachas Avram Bakol. But also because I want to share with you an insight of Chief Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. The world lost. What a terrible, terrible, and difficult weekend it was for Klai Yisrael, and more than just for Klai Yisrael, for the world. The loss of Rav David Feinstein's Zechet Tzadik, Kaddish Levracha, Rav David, the Posek of America, Rav David Tzadik. We are at a loss. We are bereft without his humble and modest leadership and guidance in halacha. And the world lost Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, who I think is someone so irreplaceable. I'm not going to take the time to offer my humble impressions of what it means that we lost him, what it means that we lost him. I don't know how many of you listening live or afterwards print out his Dvar Torah on the Parsha every week. What will be stuck in our talis bag or what will make an appearance at our Shabbos table? What will make sense out of contemporary events or what will give us a charge for leadership in our lives without him? He was so unusual and I have many thoughts, but not for now. But I want to share with you the following and I can't do it justice by repeating it, so I'm going to do something unusual I've never done, which is I want to share it for you here in the Parsha class, but I want to share it him in his own words. Around three years ago, January 2018, Rabbi Sachs came to our community to fulfill a promise he had made because of a certain episode that had happened. And he came to speak, and before him, there was a reception in my house, and at the time I had been thinking about starting a podcast. And I said uh, to him, could he grant me a few minutes to interview because I thought I was going to do a podcast. Meanwhile, that recording sat in my phone, and I did nothing with it for three years. But learning the devastating news of his loss, I went back and listened to that recording and determined I had to share it with the world. And yesterday I posted it. And as everything is bashert in life, nothing is coincidental. That it wasn't Parshas Chayisara that he came here to speak. It was January 2018. But for some reason in that conversation, one of the questions I asked, he answered by invoking an insight from Parshas Chayisara. The very week or the Shabbos in which we are, are uh, mourning him in which his shiva falls, in which the world feels his absence. So rather than try to repeat it in his name, I want you to listen to his own words, and I want you to listen to it against the backdrop of Kulan Shavan Latova. Rabbi Sachs suffered cancer twice in his life before he finally was lost to it this past Shabbos. He suffered from cancer twice, he had hardship, and yet you listen to his voice and you listen to his unwavering faith, and it is reminiscent of the Rebbe of Zusha. It is reminiscent of the attitude of Sarah, Imenu, Kulan, Shavu, Latova, that they were all equal for the good. It's reminiscent and it invokes the image of Avram Avinu, that Hashem Yerach is Avram Bakol. So I wish I could play for you the whole thing. It's much better use of your time than listening to me this morning. But I just want to play you this part where he talks about the insight from Parshas Chai Sarah. I hope you can hear it. Rabbi Sachs. You are a, uh, a beacon of faith. You promote faith, you teach faith, and you've inspired faith, not only in the Jewish community and among the Jewish people, but around the world. And my first question is, do you ever struggle with faith? Do you ever feel that you confront doubt? And in those moments of uncertainty, what do you do to overcome it? Okay, let me be very blunt with you. I've had many crises of faith. I have never had a crisis of faith in a Kaddish Baruch in God. I have had many, many crises of faith in humanity. As soon as I began to understand the Holocaust, as soon as I began to understand that this took place at the heart of civilized Europe, it was not some third world country or some medieval century. And uh, the biggest question of faith that I have is how come? Knowing all this would happen, HaKadosh Baruch Hu had faith in us. But I never lacked faith in God because I never expected the impossible from Him. I know perfectly well 
that he put each of us here for a reason. And we are supposed to um, discern that and walk on ahead. For me, the critical moment that defined my faith was Parshas Chai Sarah. It begins with the death of Sarah. There is Abraham, having lost his life companion. He is now 137. He has received from Hashem three promises. Number one, I will give you the land. He promised him that seven times. Number two, I will give you children. Four times, I will make you a great nation, though may as many as the stars of the sky, as the sand on the seashore, I will make you not one nation, but many nations. And he had one son. Where was the father of many nations? Where was the infinite number of descendants? And what did he do at that moment when he should have had a crisis of faith? He understood that God said, walk on ahead of me. So what did he do? He bought the first plot of land. He made sure his son got married so that he would have Jewish grandchildren. And then in that strange episode, he takes an additional wife whose name is Keturah, and he has six more children who become the fathers of many nations. In other words, instead of expecting God to do it for him, he realized that God was expecting him to do the hard work for Hashem. Once I understood that, I never, ever had a crisis of faith. Sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> Not at all. That's very, uh, it's very inspiring. When, when you're... There's a lot more and a lot worth listening to, to even hear his voice again is, is so powerful and painful. And uh, as I said, for another context, another time, to hear the reflections. But that, that to me, what a powerful insight Rabbi Sachs was sharing. Kulan Shavon Hashem Avram Bakol. That one doesn't ever have a crisis of faith in Hashem if we realize that we don't work, that He doesn't work for us, we work for Him. That His that we have to walk in front of Him, that we have to be in front of Him and be with Him. And that that is our mission, that is our mandate, that is our responsibility. And despite all he had been through, Rabbi Sachs, he never had a crisis of faith in Hashem, only he had crisis of faith in, in other people. All that is Tvar Torah number one, insight number one. Moving right along. I want to share with you an insight we've been uh, learning together, the wonderful Sefer Eish Tamid of Rav Yisrael Meir Druk, a great Rosh Hashiva today in Yerushalayim. And he has a beautiful insight here. Rashi tells us, Vatama Arba hi Chevron Canaan. Sarah passes away in Kiryat Arba, which is Chevron. Avram comes in order to eulogize for Sarah and to cry. He cries, of course, the sense of loss of Sarah, and he offers a, a eulogy for her. As we begin with, why are we connecting? Why does the beginning, Sarah's death, why is it adjacent? Why is it juxtaposed to the story of the Akedah? What is the connection between the two? So Rashi tells us the story that when Sarah heard of the close call, just how close a call it was, that Yitzchak almost died because of the Akedah, she expired, she left this world. Why does Rashi bring that insight? The insight of the juxtaposition of the Akedah to the death of Sarah. Why does Rashi provide that insight, that teaching, specifically on the words, why does Rashi bring that teaching on the words that Avram came to eulogize Sarah and to cry? When should Rashi have brought that insight? Rashi's insight should have been elucidating the words, Vatamas Sarah Bekiryas Arba. Sarah died. What was the cause of death? Her hearing about the story of the Akedah. Why does Rashi wait to share that insight of the cause of death? until the words that Avram came to eulogize his wife and to cry for her. Good question. The Midukte Rashi, from those who are careful, scrupulous, those who look carefully in studying Rashi, that question should arise. So says Rav Druk, in this bonin bin Yisrael Akeda Navchin ki amna mistaklus pshuta nira shani sani stayim bekach she Avram muchan lishchores Yitzchak beno v'kadosh baruch hu man omikach 
When did the Akedah end? The Akedah began when Hashem tapped him on the shoulder and said, Lech lecha el har hamoriyah. I want you to go, I need to ask you to do something. When did the Akedah end? If you would have asked me, maybe the Akedah ended when the angel called out and said, Stop! Drop the knife! Don't do it! Maybe the Akedah ended when he found the ram, caught in its horns, and instead shechted the ram. Maybe the Akedah ended when Yitzchak and Avram, hand in hand, arm in arm, walk away from this harrowing experience, forever changed together. But I would have said the Akedah ended somewhere in there at the end of the Akedah. Says Rav Jirakum Yitzudah Hayamoser Asadavar Ayakar Lo Mikob B'Shul HaKadosh Baruch Hu V'Nimtza She'amad B'Nisayon Shleimas Ha'emesi She'bekach Lo Nistayim Anisayon the truth is that the test of the Akedah did not end when they walked down from the mountain. Because what was the result, what was the consequence of the Akedah? When Avram came down from that mountain, and when Avram arrived home, and when Avram got the news, the devastating, tragic news that his life partner, that his other half, Sarah, was gone. And what was her cause of death? She had heard of the close call of the Akedah. A lesser person, a lesser person than Avram Avinu, how would they have reacted? What would they have thought? A lesser person would have said to themselves, Oh my goodness, what did I just do? What happened? What is the consequence? I should have never done it. I should have never listened. I should have told Hashem, I can't cross that line. I should have never taken my Yitzchak. I should have never kept Sarah in the dark. But Avram Avinu instead never wavered. Even after he understood or learned of the consequence of what it cost him, Avram understood that when God says, jump, you say, how high? And Avram understood that if Sarah died, it wasn't because of him. It was her time to go because HaKadosh Baruch Hu feared the Welt. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Almighty, runs the world. Says Rav Druk, the Nisayon, the test of the Akedah, did not end when he got down from the mountain. The test of the Akedah indeed continued when he arrived home to find out about the loss of Sarah. And the test continued in challenging him. How would he react how would he react to this news, to this hardship? The death of Sarah is the continuation, the literal continuation of the test of the Akedah. The fact that he had no regret. That was the completion. That was the fulfillment. That was the conclusion of the test of the Akedah. Not when they came down from the mountain, but only when they arrived home to find out that news. Says Rav Druk, now we understand why did Rashi specifically bring this teaching of the connection, the juxtaposition of the Akedah to the death of Sarah on the words to eulogize Sarah and to cry. Because it was specifically in that sense of grief and loss. It was specifically in his eulogizing and his crying where the continuation of the Akedah went on. The test continued. So therefore Rashi specifically brings the teaching that the cause of death was the Akedah on the words that he grieved and he cried and he mourned and he eulogized Sarah to teach us that that sense of loss was in fact a continuation of the experience of the Akedah. The test of the Akedah did not end when he came down from the mountain. The test of the Akedah continued. I'll tell you, I've seen elsewhere the similar idea that Rav Druk is sharing here that tells us this is the words that we say every night when we make the bracha hashkivenu in our mar of davening and we say, V'hasr satan milfanenu u'me'achareinu. If you've been with me, you know I love this insight. My favorite divrei Torah I'm going to share and I'm not going to apologize for it. I love them. They inspire me. I hope they inspire you. And if you don't like it, I believe in recycling. What can I tell you? I'm a recyclerist. So, what do we mean? The satan milfaneinu, I understand. Remove the satan. Remove, remove the evil urge. Remove the appetite for that which is wrong. Remove the voice of the Sahara, the satan milfaneinu. I got it. The rest of my day, I'm going to be tempted to eat the wrong thing, say the wrong thing, look at the wrong thing, go the wrong... I got it. There's a satan. There's a voice of temptation that is attracting me, milfaneinu, in front of me. What is the satan milacharenu? 
What is the voice of the Satan behind me? If it's behind me, what kind of Satan is it? If it's behind me and I've already passed it, then what way am I still challenged by it? How could there be a Satan? How could there be a challenging voice, which is Mila Acharenu? So I saw in several places this exact insight. You know what the Satan Mila Acharenu is? How do we react in life when we do the right thing, but it doesn't work out in the right way? We did the right thing. But you know what? Despite what we were taught sometimes when we're young, doing the right thing, the honest thing, doesn't always pay. It doesn't. Sometimes when you do the honest thing or the right thing, it doesn't pay. Will you regret having done the honest thing? There's a journal of education, of Jewish education, called Tain Da'at. And there was once an article in there that I saw that had the following discussion or question. You know, the minug is that if a student brings a test up to the teacher and says, you know, you marked a wrong answer correct, you gave me too many points, what do most teachers do? Most teachers say, you know what, because you were honest, and because you brought it to my attention, and because you stepped forward, keep the points. I'm not going to deduct them. I'm not going to take them off. And this article in this Jewish educational journal suggested that that's a terrible mistake. It's, an, it's a loss of a, of a teachable moment. Why? Because, you know, if you go to the IRS and you say, you know, by accident, you let me keep too much money, they don't say, you know what, keep it. You go to the store and you say, you know, by accident, you gave me too much change. They don't say, you know what, you were honest, keep the change. In life, honesty, we're not honest because it pays. Because the truth is, most of the time in life, honesty doesn't pay. When you do the honest thing, it costs you. When you return the money that you were over, uh, were given too much in, in change, it doesn't pay. We're not honest because it pays. We're honest because we're supposed to be honest. That was the article of this author, the argument of this author. So, Haser Satan Milfaneinu, remove the voice of temptation before me, but also remove the voice from behind me. That even after I've done the right thing, but I've done the right thing and the right thing didn't pay. The right thing didn't pay off. So maybe now I'm going to regret it. Maybe now I'm going to wish I didn't do it. Maybe now I'm going to wish I could turn back time. That's the Satan Mil'acharenu. And that's the, the test of the Nisan of Avram continued. It wasn't over when he came down the mountain. It continued all the way through the episode of Sarah. And says Rav Druk, Now we can understand another anomaly in this Pasuk. The Pasuk says, He got the devastating news that his wife had passed away. So what did he do? He eulogized her, and then he cried. And I ask you, is that the order? Is that the order? The family of Rav David Feinstein Zatzal, the family and the world who lost Lord Sachs Zatzal. Did we first offer eulogies and only then cry? Or does one react by crying, wailing, and only then compose themselves to deliver a eulogy? What is the correct order? Shouldn't it say he first came at Liv Kosa and then Lisbod Lisara? Why is it out of order? It's a famous question. Many, many, many answers are given. Says Rav Druk, but now we can understand. He says, You're right. If you didn't know the deceased, first you eulogize, and then when you've come to learn about the deceased, then you cry. But when you know the deceased, when she was your other half, she was your life partner, shouldn't you cry first and then? The Pasuk is testifying to the greatness of Avraham. Why? Because he withstood this Nisan of the Akedah until its end. Not just when he got down the mountain, but he withstood the challenge of the Akedah all the way through when he came home to find out about Sarah. If he would have begun to cry before he eulogized, an onlooker, an observer, might have erroneously concluded, why is Avram crying? Why is he crying? He's not crying about the loss of Sarah. He's crying because he made such a mistake listening to God to do the Akedah. Had he cried before the eulogy, one might have mistakenly concluded that the cause of his crying is regret for the Akedah. That's why the Torah tells us first he eulogized, he held back and suppressed the tears, and he only cried after the eulogy. Why? Because he wanted to make clear that the source of his tears was not regret for the Akedah. He was whole with having done the Akedah. He, fought, he surpassed that test all the way to its end. What was the source of the tears? The source of the tears was crying for the loss of his beloved 
of his beloved wife, Sarah. We'll move on and that's why the Pasuk seems to be out of order in this, in this way. Okay, that's the first Rav we're going to mention today. Moving right along. Pasuk tells us, So, Avram finds out that Sarah had in fact died, and what does he have to do next? He has to buy a burial plot. He has to be able to bury his beautiful wife, his life partner, his other half, Sarah. So what does he do? Perch of Gimel Pasuk Tezvav. He negotiates. He negotiates with this used car salesman, with this faker fraud phony named Ephron Hachiti. Ephron Hachiti says much and does little. He makes empty offers and gestures. And Avram's got to put up with it. Rabbeinu Yonah, we've shared before, Rabbeinu Yonah says this was the 10th test of Avram. 10th test was not the Akedah. The 10th test of Avram was, would he lose his cool in having to deal and negotiate with an Ephron Hachiti? All of us interact with those people who have no, they don't negotiate in good faith. They get under our skin. They're horrible people. Will we lose our cool? Will we lose our humanity and our integrity and our dignity? Avram Avinu didn't, even though he had every reason in the world to. And in that way, he passed that 10th test. So he negotiates with his Ephron Achiti. And what's the negotiation? Ephron says, Listen, mister. A land worth 400 silver kesef? What's it between us? Bury your dead. And, and 400 shekel kesef, what is it between us? And Rashi here fills in. Again, we've looked at this in depth other times. You can listen to the past Pasha Shirem. I'm not going to get into it now. Where Ephron says, I want to give it to you for free. And Avram says, I want to pay. He says, no, I want it for free, but what's 400 shekel kesef? To which Avram understands that he named the price because he doesn't really ever want to give it for free. He was a total... Don't be emor ma'at vasei harbei. Don't don't emor harbei vasei ma'at. Don't say a lot and do little, but rather emor ma'at say little vasei harbei and do much. So the the vision of the Rebbe, the Imre Chaim, says the Imre Chaim. I don't understand. Comes Rashi. Rashi in the pasuk says, "Beni uveincha." Ephron Achiti turns to Avram and says, "400 shekel kesef? Ah, what is it between friends? What is it between us? It's nothing. Just pay it, and you'll have land to bury your beloved." Beini uveincha. Zakh Rashi, what is beini uveincha? Bein shnei ohavim kamoni mahim chashuv leklum. Between two friends who love one another, what's 400 shekel kesef? It's garnished, it's nothing. Elahina chesamecha ve'esmezcha kfor. So ask the vision of Tzarebbe, the Imrechaim, v'chihikir Avram es Ephron kodom lachain. Avram first had to identify who owned the land. Then he goes to the people, the Chiti people, and he says, where's Ephron? And he's first meeting Ephron to have this negotiation. This is their first time meeting. So why would the Pasuk, why would Ephron describe them as Ohavim, that they are beloved friends? How could they be beloved? What's beloved about them or what's beloved between them when they're meeting for the very first time? Eich nasu pitom Ohavim. How did they suddenly become such dear friends? This is the question of the great Vishnitzer Rebbe. So he answers, What Ephraim meant is, not, not we are beloved friends, but we both love something. I happen to love money, says Ephraim. And you happen to love mitzvahs. For me, I love money, so 400 shekel kesef, it's gornish, it's nothing. It's negligible. It's a rounding error. For me, who loves money, it's nothing. Oiv kesef li yisbe kesef. Uva adcha sheata oiv mitzvah sorry lo yishve be'enecha kolhon ba'ad ki mitzvah. For you, for you who loves mitzvahs, so there's no, it's it's invaluable. There's no money you wouldn't pay to perform a mitzvah. In kein arba meo shekel kesef be'nu be'encham mahu. So says the vision, so says the Imre Chaim, that's what Ephron was saying. What Ephron Achiti was saying, not that we are beloved to one another, but between two people who love something. I love money, you love mitzvos. The deal works out. I love money, 400 shekel kesef. You love mitzvos, you're happy to pay that. It's a bargain for it. So mahu, what is it between us? The Mechaim explains that O'avim is not describing their relationship, that they were beloved between the two, but rather O'avim is describing that they both love something. And because they both love something, what are you willing to give up for that which you love? For Ephron, his love of money, he's willing to give up his integrity. 
For Avram, his love of mitzvos, he's willing to give up his money. What are you willing to give up for that thing that you love? We'll get to this later when we get to Lavan momentarily. What are you willing to sell out? What are you a sellout for, for that which you, for that which you love? Yeah, as Sarah comments, transactional, not relational. It wasn't about a relationship between Ephron and Avram. It was purely transactional. It was something that was purely a transaction. We both love things. So it's a deal that works out for both. I love money and you love mitzvahs. Which one are we? How would we be characterized? As loving money or loving mitzvahs? Can you love both? Or are they in conflict? Maybe you can't love, maybe you can't love both. Mahu, you know, along these same lines, many have explained. We learn, kicha kicha miste Ephron. We learn, you know, a chassan gives a ring to a kala under the chuppah, and they're betrothed, they're married. The heiress in the first step of marriage is he gives her something of value, either money, although we don't do that, or something that's shavakasif, something that's equal to money, something that is of value like money, shavakasif. And where do we learn that in fact a marriage can be enacted? Where do we learn that betrothal can take place through one giving the other, the chassan giving the kala, shavakasif, the value of a money, a ring? We learn a kicha kicha miste Ephron. Here in the section of the purchase, it says, kach mimeni, take the money. And when it comes to marriage, it says, ki kach ish isha. Since the same verb kicha is used in both contexts, just like the purchase of the machpelah was with money, so too the acquisition or the uh, securing the relationship of marriage can be done with money. So the question is asked, could there be a less romantic idea? Could there be a less romantic idea than learning from the purchase of Amaras HaMachpelah. Could you imagine standing under the chuppah? And dear Hassan, you give the Kala the ring, and where do we learn that this works? We learn it because Sarah dropped dead, and Avram had to bury her, and it to buy some plot in a cemetery in earth. Is there a least romantic thing than talking about death at the moment of marriage? So one answer is, the answer is, you know, the notion of till death do us part, it starts with us, that's ours. We learn from Avram that at the moment of marriage, you have to be prepared till death do us part. It's not a disposable relationship. You're not gonna turn it in like the car lease. You're not gonna upgrade like your phone. You don't upgrade to a newer model when it comes to a spouse. Till death do us part. Where do we learn the moment of Erison under the chuppah? The chassan and kala should each have a mentality of till marasamachpela, till death do us part. We're in this all the way. It's not an experiment, we're not trying, it's not disposable, it's not temporary, it's not a lease we're gonna upgrade or turn in but rather till death do us part, this is permanent and forever. But the second understanding that's brought down by some is this Pasuk, this vision of Tzarebbe. What's the vision of Tzarebbe? We both love things. Ben Shnei Ohavim Kamonu, two people who love things. What's the difference? So when Ephron walked away from the deal, what did he say? The Merchaim says, the reason he said this is because he loved money. But forget the reason he said it. What did he say? He said, boy, did I get the better end of that deal. 400 shekel kesef, this universal currency I can use anywhere, 400 shekel kesef, boy, did I get the better end of the deal. I took him for a ride. I got the better end of the deal. Boy, did I walk away making a killing. And when Avram walked away, because Avram was always mitzvos, and he said, I want this machpelah. This is the place that I want to spend eternity with my wife. Avram said, boy, did I get the better end. 400 shekel kesef, I would have paid quadruple that. Boy, did I get the better end of the deal. Just like when it came to the sale of the machpelah, each one said, I got the better end of the deal. Similarly, when it comes to marriage, each one needs to say, I got the better end of the deal. A good marriage is bet is where both people feel they're getting the better end of the deal. When each one feels they married up, when each one feels they got a steal, when each one feels they got the better end of the deal, that in fact is a good marriage. And that is what and that is what uh, what we're learning from this. So that's the Imre Chaim. Two people who love things. You love money, I love mitzvahs. Each one thinks they got the better end of the deal. When we get married, the beautiful marriage is where both feel they got the end, better end of the deal. In my marriage, there's no question. By far, I married up and got the better end of the deal. Okay, moving right along. Perich of Dalad, Pasuk Beis. Perich of Dalad, Pasuk Beis. The Avrams became Babayamim. We mentioned before that Avram had reached the ripe old age. And he's babayamim, whatever that means. He's on in years. Hashem berachas Avram bakol, and Hashem blessed him with everything. So what does he realize? He's got a son. He may have lost his wife. It's tried time to pass the mantle of leadership. It's time to hand off the baton. How's he going to do it? As Rabbi Sachs Zatzal said, and we played that recording for you. He said, "I need continuity. I need Jewish eniklach. 
I need to know that everything I've given my life for has a sense of continuation. We know this is Avram's priority. How do we know that? We shared it last week. Why does Hashem love Avram? Not because of the thousands and millions of people who he helped convert and he inspired and he changed the world. Why does he love Avram? Hashem loves Avram because Avram is committed to continuity of his values of his people. Hashem loves Avram because Avram is committed to a continuity of this experiment called the Jewish people, ethical monotheism, because Avram wants to have Jewish enik lach and ur enik lach. He wants Jewish grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and that's why he loves him. So Avram says, how am I going to do it? Not going to happen through Yishmael, so how is it going to happen? Yitzchak needs a wife. And he summons Eliezer, we all know the story, and he makes Eliezer swear, you need to hold on to a mitzvah in order to take an oath, and uh, so therefore, he instructs Eliezer to hold the Makamah Mitzvah, Makamah Mila, and to make a promise. And what's the Shavuah? Look at Rashi. Says Rashi, So you have to hold on in order to make a Shavuah. And what's the promise? He makes Eliezer make a promise. Promise me you're going to fulfill this. Yitzchak needs a wife. And it cannot be from the Kanani. It needs to be from my family. Kanani are morally corrupt, morally decayed, morally deprived. Absolutely not. Can't be from the Kanani. Make me that promise. Don't come back. And if you can't, come back empty-handed. That too is a fulfillment of the promise. But whatever you do, do not find a wife for Yitzchak among the Kanani. Make me that promise. Now isn't it interesting? Rav Chaim Brisker, Rav Chaim Salavitchik points out, isn't it interesting Eliezer is Avram's loyal servant. What role does Eliezer have in Avram's house? What role is he in Avram's house? Torah tells us, his loyal servant. Avram was an extraordinarily wealthy man, and Eliezer was his financial advisor. Eliezer had all the passwords. Eliezer knew the code to the safety deposit box, to the safe in the house. Eliezer had access to all the accounts. Eliezer was in charge of all of Avram's money. And you understand what's happening here? Avram says... That, Avram says, I trust you with my money, but I can't trust you with my son's life, my continuity, without a promise. We don't find in the Torah that Avram makes Eliezer take a shvua, take an oath to be in charge of his money. But he does have to take an oath to be in charge of his continuity, of his spirituality, of his spiritual succession. You see from here, said Rukhaim Brisker, the priority. Again, in contrast to Ephron, and in contrast, we'll see in a moment, to Lavan, even though Avram had extraordinary wealth, it didn't define him. It doesn't mean he was flippant or casual with it. He cared about it, he safeguarded it, but he didn't make Eliezer take an oath about the money. He only made Eliezer take an oath when it came to his spiritual succession and continuity, when it came to this promise. That is the insight of Reb Chaim Brisker. Now, why did he need that promise or oath? Did Eliezer have other plans? Did Eliezer have other, have other ideas? Now, by the way, when it comes to this, I saw, um, I saw somebody when they were referencing that Reb Chaim Brisker, Rabbi Asher Brander, when he was referencing that Reb Chaim Brand, that Reb Chaim Brisker, he said his grandmother used to reference the Jews of America, the Jews of America, who hide their money from their housekeeper but let the housekeeper raise their children. It's the opposite of Avram Avinu. They hide the money from the housekeeper. They're worried the housekeeper is going to steal the money, but they have no problem that the housekeeper is the one raising the children. Avram was the opposite. You don't have to make me any promises when it comes to managing my money. But when it comes to managing my children, I need you to take a shvua. I need you to take an oath. That's where the bar is much higher. That's where the standard is much greater. It's a great insight of that, that bubby, of that grandmother. So, Rashi, Perich of Dalad Pasag Lamates. Skip ahead in the story. Eliezer goes on this mission and Eliezer makes a deal with God. And Eliezer says, if I see this character trait within her, then I know she's the one, and so on and so forth. And he meets Rivka, Rivka takes her home, and it's time for the negotiation. And what does the Pasuk say? The Pasuk says, Perak, Chaf, Dalet, Pasuk, Lamites, skipping away ahead, page 116, the Arts Girl Stolchamish, Va'omar El Adoni, Eliezer is repeating the whole story. When he gets to see Besuel and Lavan, when he gets to Rivka's brother and father, he's repeating the whole background, the whole story. And the Torah, by the way, could have been much more efficient, could have used the space much more efficiently. Torah goes out of its way to repeat the entire story a second time, even though we all already know it. We'll come back to why in a moment. So what does Eliezer say to Besuel and Lavan? Va'omar el Adoni. So I said to my master, to Avram, Ulai lo isha acharai. 
He's repeating the whole conversation. My master, my boss, Avram, called me in one day and he said, I need you to go find a, a wife for my son Yitzchak. And he made me take a promise. And I told him, I said, master, boss, man, what happens if I can't find a woman there? And my boss told me, Ulai, and so I said, Ulai lo isha acharai. I'm sorry, what if I find her, but what if she's not willing to follow me? Ulai lo isha acharai. What if I find her and she meets the criteria and she is the one, but she's not willing to follow me home? What then? So Rashi comes along on the word Ulai and says Rashi, Rashi, Perak Chavdal Pasuk Lamites, says Rashi, Eliksiv. If you look at the word Ulai is spelled, it's not spelled the way you'd expect it, Aleph, Vav, Lamed, Yud. It's spelled Aleph, Lamed, Yud. Now the word Aleph, Lamed, Yud can be read either Ulai, or it can be read, what? Eli. Ulai means perhaps, what if? What if I find her, but she doesn't follow me home? Eli means to me. Zakdarashi, Eliksiv, Bas Haisalola Eliezer. You know, Eliezer also had a daughter who was holding in Shiduchim, as they say. And, and Eliezer really had this underlying motivation. Eliezer really had this backup plan. You know, I'll humor my boss. I'll go on this trip. I'll go on this mission. I'll look for a wife for, for Yitzchak. But you know who really make a great shidduch, a great match for Yitzchak? You know who Eliezer really hopes in the end of the day is going to be the one? His own daughter. His own daughter. Va'amalo Avram. And when Avram got wind of this, he says, B'ni baruch va'ata arur ve'in arur medabeg b'baruch. My son is blessed. And you're among those who are cursed. And those who are cursed and blessed, they don't mix. That's an intermarriage. I'm unwilling. I'm unwilling. So the Gra comes along and the Gra asks, I don't understand what's going on in Rashi here. Where did Rashi know this? Where did the Medrash Chazal know this? The Pasuk says, Ulai lo isha acharai. Was that a legitimate concern of Eliezer? Was it not legitimate for him to say to his boss, what happens if I find the right girl? She doesn't want to come. You can't force someone to get married who doesn't want to get married, even no matter how much you think she's your basher. So what if I conclude she's the basher? She meets all the criteria, she passes all the tests, but what happens if she doesn't want to come? Isn't that a legitimate question Eliezer's posing? How did Avram know from the question that, and how does the Torah know from the question, that Eliezer really had ulterior motives? That in asking that question, maybe she won't come, he wasn't just posing a theoretical question. He was offering a prayer. His hope and his wish was, she won't come, and then Yitzchak will marry my daughter, who is waiting. So the Vilna Gon answers very interestingly. Says the Vilna Gon, we have two words to say, perhaps. Two words to say, maybe. What are the two words? Pen and ulai. Pen and ulai. Pen, for example, Hishamru lachem pen We say it in Shema every day. Hishamru, protect yourself. Pen lest you follow your heart. Or, Guard yourself, be careful, lest you forget everything I've told you today. There, the use of the word pen means perhaps, lest. The second word that we can use, though, is not pen, but ulai. Ulai ibana mimena. Sarah Imenu says to Avram last week, take Hagar as a wife, maybe I can feel Maybe I can be built. Maybe I can experience continuity through her. Ulai. Or, also in last week's Pasha, Avram turns to God and he says, Ulai yesh anashim. Maybe there are 50 men. Maybe. 50, 45, 40. When do you use pen and when do you use ulai? When does the Torah use pen and when does it use ulai if it means the same thing? So listen to the insight of the Gra. Says the Gom, the Torah uses pen to describe when someone really doesn't want something. Pen yiftelavavchem, pen tishkach. That's something we don't want to have happen. Ulai is used when you want the thing to happen. So Sarah says, Ulai, maybe Hagar will have children and I'll have continuity through her. Ulai, maybe. So pen is a maybe where I don't want the maybe to happen. And Ulai is the maybe where that's exactly what I want. Ulai is chamishim anashim. Says Avram, I hope there are 50 righteous men. Ulai, maybe, Efshir. Maybe there are 50 righteous men. Ulai, I want that to have happen. So says the Gra, pen means maybe, but I don't want it to happen. 
Ulai means maybe, and it's exactly what I want. And because Eliezer used the word Ulai, that's how Torah, that's how Avram knew that Eliezer had an ulterior motive. Ulai lo Maybe she won't follow me. Not maybe, but I hope she follows me. Ulai, maybe she won't follow me. Maybe, and really I hope, she won't follow me. And why? Because he had his own daughter. That was his motivation. That's what he, that's what he wanted. But there's still one more question to ask. So we saw Rashi, the Gra's question, and the Gra's brilliant insight, the difference between Pen and Ulai, and therefore Eliezer, he tipped his hat, he played his hand, he made it clear that he really had this ulterior motive, that he really wanted Yitzchak for his daughter, Rif, his daughter, which also explains why Avram was so insistent that a shvua, that an oath be taken. But there's one more question. Is this the first time that we see Eliezer saying, maybe she won't come? When does Rashi make this comment? Rashi is making this comment when Eliezer is busy telling Besuel and Lavan about the whole original conversation with Avram. When should Rashi have made this comment? Back on Pasakei. Pasakei is, go back to page 110. Pasakei is the original conversation. Avram says, I need you to go on a mission. I need you to come back with a girl. Eliezer says, but what if she doesn't want to come? Why didn't Rashi, at the original conversation, jump in and say, Eliezer's got ulterior motives. Why does he wait until now? Why does he wait until now? So the great Kotzker Rebbe, the great Kotzker Rebbe, Rebbe Nachum Mendel Morgenstern, the great Kotzker explains that Eliezer, to the best of his knowledge, was sincere. Eliezer didn't even realize his own ulterior motive. It was only subconsciously when he gets there and he meets Rivka that he reflects back to that conversation. Does he realize that subconsciously from the very beginning he was trying to create a different outcome? Subconsciously, he had an ulterior motive all along, says the Katzker Rebbe. When he set out on the mission, he was sincere. He hadn't even thought about it. Only now does he reflect and realize retroactively that subconsciously it's what he wanted all along. The Emes Lianker of Yaakov Kamenetsky has a similar insight about Lot in last week's parsha, wondering why, when he goes to Stone, Rashi, the Pasuk says, that why does he go to Stone? Because his eyes drawn there for the water. He wants to go for the water. Zakhtar Rashi, why does he go there? Don't read water as water. Read water is arayos, promiscuity. So one does Rabbi Yankov Kamenetsky, the Emes Yaakov, why does the Torah tell us an ulterior reason than the one given by the Torah? If the Torah tells you why he was drawn there, why give another reason? So Rav Yaakov says, because, listen to this, just like when it comes to interpreting the Torah, we have four layers or levels of interpretation called pardes, pshat, remez, drash, and sod. My son-in-law Kalev called my attention to this Rav Yaakov. He told me this beautiful Yaakov. Just like when it comes to interpreting the Torah, there are four layers or levels of interpretation, pshat, remez, drash, sod. So too when it comes to ourselves and understanding ourselves, there are multiple layers to our own personality, attitude, to our wants and needs. There's the pshat, the remez, the drash, and the sod. So yes, the pshat of what was Lot's motivation was water. But you know what the hidden reason was? Arayos. The real reason what drove him? Promiscuity, licentiousness, immorality, corruption. And that's what Rabbi Yaakov says Rashi is telling us. Just like in interpreting the Pasuk, there are layers of interpretation, so too in coming to know ourselves and interpret ourselves, there are layers of who we are. There's what we claim to want in the conscious, and there's what is driving us in the subconscious. It is very, very, uh, this Emes Nyakov works perfectly. Lot, with the Kutzker's insight over here, what's going on with Eliezer, that there are multiple layers of what drives us, of who we are, and the greater self-awareness, the more knowledge we have of ourselves, the better we understand ourselves. Perach of Dalad, Pasag and Aleph. So here in this conversation, we're introduced to this character, Lavan. Ooh, Bikesh Lavan, Lakor Sakol, Arami Ovid Avi, Bikesh Lavan, Lakor Sakol. Lavan is a very nefarious, wicked, is a very twisted, uh, a terrible, terrible person. So, Perach of Dalad, Pasag Lamed Aleph. Lavan sees that Eliezer is dripping with jewelry, dripping with wealth, and he sees the money and he says, Shirachsan, marrying for money. It works well. Just like we saw Ephron, Ohev, he loved money. So too, Lavan loves money. Perach of Dalet, Pasuk Lamed Aleph. 
ויאמר בוא ברוך השם, so he says come, למה תעמוד בחוץ? ואנוכי פניסי אביס במקום לגמלים. Why are we having this whole conversation outside? He tells Eliezer with his entourage and all of his money. Come inside. And how can you come inside? Because Pinisi Habayas. Why was Eliezer not willing to go inside? And what did Lavan do to change that? To make it a much more amenable, to make it much more inviting. Anochi Pinisi Habayas. I made room in the house. How did he make room? What, did he take a couch out? How did he make room? He pushed the furniture to the corner? What does it mean he made room? Zagdrashi, what does it mean he made room? I got rid of the idolatry. I got rid of the idolatry. Eliezer was hesitant, reluctant. Eliezer was staying outside because he wouldn't go into a house with idolatry. And love on understanding this says, I want the shidduch. The dollar signs at the end of the shidduch. So he says, I got rid of the idolatry. You're free to come in. Come inside the house. Says the altar of Kelm, or the altar of Navardic rather. The altar of Navardic, a magnificent insight. My buddy Shai Stern shared that with me this morning. The altar of Navardic says an incredible insight. You know what it means? It says the altar, Lavan sold his ideology for money. You know, Avodazara was the wrong answer. Avodazara was the wrong destination. But at least he had a religion. When you sell your religion for money, you have nothing. You stand for nothing. So he had Avodazara in the house. Why? He was an Oved Avodazara. It was the wrong religion, but at least he was religious. But now all of a sudden he sees Eliezer, and Eliezer has all this money, this entourage, this fame. And he says, I can tap into that, I can access that. A shidduch with that money can be mine. Says the altar of Navardic, Panisi makom babayis. I've sold out. I've sold my ideology, I've sold my religion, I've sold my faith for this money. That was Ephron. Ephron loved money, while Avram loved mitzvos. And Lavan, Lavan loves money. So much so he's willing to sell his religion and sell his faith. Again, in contrast to Avram, Avram Hashem Be'erach is Avram Bakol. And that's the insight of Bakol Mikokol. Avram gave that coal to Yitzchak, who gave it to Yaakov. We say in our benching, Bakol Mikokol. Hu yitain lanu. We want that Bakol Mikokol. Hashem Be'erach is Avram Bakol. Whatever we have, we have everything. When Yaakov meets Esav, and Esav says, Yeshli Rav, I have a lot. Yaakov says, Yeshli Kol, I have everything. You know, we don't have this thirst, this insatiable appetite for money. Whatever we have from Hashem, it's what we're meant to have. So it's a brilliant insight of the Altar of Navardic that Panisi Makom, Banochi Panisi Abayis. I've emptied the house. I've emptied my moral bank account. I've emptied my ideology and my religious convictions. I've emptied it all out. I've sold out. Why? For money. That was Lavan. That was the character of Lavan that he was able to and willing to sell out for money. I'll end with one more. Which one should I do? I have so many beautiful insights here. Beautiful insight about Derech Eretz. We'll do that another year. I'll end with the following. Perech Chavdalet Pasuk Samach Vav. Pasuk Samach Vav. Vaisapera Eved Liyitzchak is called Dvar Masher Asa. Eliezer comes back from this mission. It's a successful mission. Rivka comes and marries Yitzchak. Yitzchak brings her into the tent and he loves her in the wrong order. We've spoken about that before. We think that first you have to fall in love, then you get married. First he marries her, and the love only comes later. Why? Because what love really is, is not lust can come, infatuation can come, like can come, but love can only come later, and that's why the Pasuk seemingly is out of order. But I want to go back to this. Eliezer tells Yitzchak, all the things that what? All the things that he had done. Says Rashi, he tells him all the things that he had done. Says Rashi, Gilalo nisim shenasulo. He shared all of the miracles that happened for him. It should have been a three-day, it should have been a 17-day journey, I think, whatever the number was. It should have been a long journey. It happened in three hours. And that Rivka was the answer to his prayers. So, says Rav Druk, says the Ishtamid, I don't understand. Why did Eliezer present to Yitzchak Good news! Mission successful, mission accomplished. Listen to Advarim Asher Asa. I've accomplished all the things that I did. I. Vachi Advarim Elu Asa Eliezer. Halo Nisim Alalu. Halo Nisim Alalu were from Hashem. Masha Omer es kol Advarim Asher Asa. Hayalol Amar es kol Advarim Asher Naasu Lo. He should have said, listen to all the things, not that I did, listen to all the things that were done for me. 
Why does he misrepresent it and take credit for it? Says Rav Druk the following, Nira Habiur, so the answer is in the last word of that Rashi. What does Rashi explain? That Eliezer tells Yitzchak, let me tell you everything I did, and then he lists all the miracles that happened to him, but they happened to me, why? Because I davened for them. Because he davened for them, he is considered as if he's the one who brought them. When a person davens properly, then you get credit for the result. True, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the source of the result. But you were the one who opened the flow, that storehouse. You created that connection. You enabled Hashem to bring that change. Not the way it appears on the surface. That it's, done, it's, it's brought about by the one who did it. The davening is the act of doing. Essentially, the way I understand Rav Druk and the message I think for us is, you know, we often daven for things and then we move ahead, we move right on and we don't pause to say thank you. We don't see that our davening was answered. The miracles of today are the positive answer of the tefillah, of the prayer of yesterday. Do we ever pause to say thank you? My prayers are answered. My prayers are answered. So when he's relaying all these miracles, what he's essentially saying is, listen to all the things I did, meaning I davened for, and that came about because of my davening, listen to Hashem answered our tefillahs. Wishing everyone a wonderful day, stay happy, healthy, and holy. Tomorrow morning we continue with Mesilas Hashem 8.15 and Living with Amuna 8.45, going behind the Bima at 9 p.m. Have a wonderful, wonderful day.